on this episode of China Unscripted, how power politics affect human rights in China, China's big failure on Big Pharma, and why the secret ingredient in your lipstick is genocide. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Dinesta. And joining us once again is award-winning China analyst and human rights investigator Ethan Gutman. He's the author of Losing the New China and The Slaughter, Mass Killings, Organ Harvesting, and China's Secret Solution to Its Dissident Problem. He's also a research fellow in China Studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Ethan, thanks again for joining us from, from Heathrow Airport, I guess. Yes, that's right. Thank you. It's great to be back on the show. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, so you were in London for um, the Uyghur Tribunal, which just wrapped up. Uh, why, don't, why don't you give us a rundown of you know what the tribunal was, what it hoped to achieve? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to do that because I'm, I, I'm never going to be a lawyer or a legal type or have a legal mind, not in this lifetime anyways. Uh, but I would say that it was basically... Uh, it's a people's tribunal. Uh, the first one in years, in some years, anyways, I think about 10 or 15, was held uh, called the, informally the China Tribunal, which was really about organ harvesting mm-hmm. of uh, Falun Gong, Tibetans, uh, Uyghurs, and House Christians, but mainly about Falun Gong. And so it was a very, very focused event. Uh, they went on for quite some time. And they're very similar setup. Uh, the Uyghurs got the idea of asking for the same idea, which was more about, uh, in this case, they're trying to absolutely establish whether it's genocide or not. I suppose that's the structure that it's based around. I, I, I don't want to speak for Sir Jeffrey Nice or for the panel itself. What's interesting about it is the contrast between the two, I guess, to me, uh, mm-hmm. because I was here for the China Tribunal as well. And this time the panel was uh, at least twice as big. All right, so it was a very large panel. Uh, it really did maximize on fact witnesses, a lot of fact witnesses uh, and experts. And I would have to say that, well, it wasn't as focused, of course, as the China Tribunal, which was more fo- focused around function, the function of organ harvesting. This was focused on, on many things, that many signs of persecution, uh, different forms of persecution that the Uyghurs are undergoing. But it was an incredible wrap-up of expertise, okay? So it had fact witnesses uh, or, or refugees talking about their experiences. And it also had every major expert uh, in, a, in the world today. Just one last point. What I yeah. think what made that a little easier was everybody's kind of gotten used to the fact that you could do things a lot more remotely than we were doing them before. Uh, so... Uh, the China Tribunal was done po- pre- in the pre-pandemic days when it was, uh, you know, you, you really preferred if somebody showed up in person in London, uh, like me, you know, uh, <laughs> who showed up. And, uh, but this time they were able to really bring in experts from all around the world uh, on this issue. You found the silver lining to the pandemic. Oh, uh, yes. We don't, we don't want people around us anymore. <laughs> so, so, okay. Uh, so is the stuff happening to the Uyghurs, you know, is it conclusively genocide or is it just, you know, uh, giving people more employment for zero wages? I think, um, I, I'm not qualified to answer that question. And I honestly believe that, uh, the genocide discussion becomes a little bit sterile at a certain point. What does that mean? It's a word, it's a kind of invented word. Uh, There are different forms of genocide. Uh, We sometimes refer to crimes against humanity. For example, they did not declare organ harvesting genocide, which was disappointing to some people, but it wasn't particularly to me because all the evidence was there. Uh, To me, it meant that I didn't have to write the textbook anymore because that China tribunal just did. And when they came out with that book, it was the best and most authoritative uh, discussion of organ harvesting that's ever been put out in print. And the China Tribunal basically put to rest the idea that organ harvesting really was happening in China. 
Do you think this Uyghur tribunal will put a put a rest to whether or not this is genocide? But let me be really frank here. I think the Uyghurs are going to be a little disappointed by two on two counts. The Uyghur activists who were attending, and of course there were a lot of them. Uh, one is that they sort of thought this is a kind of an official tribunal. It's not. It's a people's tribunal. All right. It's 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 something that was set up initially. I believe uh, I may be getting this wrong, but Sir Jeffrey Nice set the first one up during the Vietnam War, and it was a way of uh, outing an issue, getting it out there, uh, examining it, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to be a bit disappointed by the results. Having said that, uh, that there are no results. It's, it's no legal standing, or it can't, it can't uh, directly impact China. That's one thing. The second thing is that I tend to doubt they're going to say this is outright genocide. I may be wrong about that. It's it's kind of one of those things you could go down and to the betting shops here, and you know they really ought to have a bet on this thing out there. So so what are, what are the odds? Well, I'd say you know I'd say about thirty three percent they're going to say it's genocide, and sixty six percent they're not. Uh, it, that was not the result of the questions. The most of the questions, these things take on their own life. Okay. And this did too. There were a lot of experts there and sort of, they started gathering the different threads of things or looking into different issues. And, uh, the people on the panel are not Uyghur experts or areas of the experts in that area of the world, but they were learning. They were like, uh, like students, like very, very intelligent students who were learning and, and, and sort of gathering information. Their questions got better and better, you know, I think the Uyghurs are going to feel some disappointment on both of those counts, though. That is my prediction. So if a people's tribunal can't force China to do anything or force any government to really do anything, what is the the function? What's the purpose? Well, again, I'm not, again, I'm probably the wrong person to answer that question. Uh, If you had David Matus here, he would be able to answer that very directly. But let me take a stab at it. Let's say China gets into a war. Let's say something, it doesn't go well. That war doesn't go well. doesn't work very well for Chinese. And let's say the leadership is under some pressure afterwards. Let's also say that something like the International Criminal Court steps in and starts investigating all this stuff. Uh, genocide. Uh, accusations of genocide. Is it possible at that time that the this will form the bedrock? This is form. This will form the foundation. I think it is. Okay, I think that's where this this really comes in, because it's 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 clearly not biased. Now it's true you didn't have the Chinese there to defend themselves, but they were asked to be there every day. And every day, uh, Sir Jeffrey Nice says, "Do we have any response from any Chinese entities? Have they responded to our invitations and so forth?" They did not. That's very rude. Well, they did respond, actually. Uh, they responded by calling it a pack of lies and a bunch of saying that most of the experts were just actors. Well, actually, the, the refugees or the fact witnesses were actors, paid actors. And uh, people like myself were, uh, I don't know, what's the words? I, I, God, you guys are so much more familiar. Come on, CIA? Were, were you CIA? No, 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 nothing like that. It's the more of those communist words they like so much. It's sort of running dog style. Uh, you know, running dogs of the American imperialists. Not quite that, yeah. but you know, you know what I mean? They use those terms. I, I don't even remember them. They come into my head and they go out. They're so vacuous. Uh, they did say that we were sort of uh, promoting a cold war and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, 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 attacks that came out on several days. I think if, if I'm not mistaken in the press on the tribunal, uh, which did indicate that I guess we've drawn some blood, or just Sir Jeffrey. I rather not we, but Sir Jeffrey Nice and the panel has drawn blood. So basically, these people's tribunals could one day form the basis of maybe something equivalent to a Nuremberg trial for the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I, I that's been my theory for this entire year is that you have to concentrate on what the Chinese leadership actually fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their fears appear to me to be about this kind Spiders. 
well, yes, about you know, <laughs> they, they, they have nightmares about the Nuremberg trials, and mm-hmm. that's why I think, even though I don't fall asleep thinking, oh gosh, isn't it great that the International Criminal Court is on the case and I can fall asleep tonight? I don't do that, but apparently the Chinese sleep badly because the International Criminal Court is out there. So maybe this will form the basis for something bigger. There's another side effect, which is it may, you know, Congress has been kind of passing these resolutions saying this is genocide and the State Department of Pompeo, you know, of course, uh, declared it was genocide and and Blinken agreed, uh, Secretary of State Blinken agreed. You know, they don't have a lot of teeth to them. The truth is they weren't very well examined. I mean, this was, these were, done after a hearing or two. This is much more elaborate uh, procedure that they're doing. Uh, and so I believe that it, it uh, makes it easier for a lot of countries to, to move on this issue now. I do think that there was an effect from the China tribunal um, ruling about organ harvesting was that we saw for the first time media covering it, organ harvesting in a way that they hadn't covered it for many years, if at all, because they could then point to this tribunal saying there was organ harvesting happening in China. They didn't have to, like the media didn't feel like we have to substantiate it ourselves. We can just say these people said it was happening. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's the the legitimacy point. I mean, I think it's freed up a lot because one of the things I've been arguing against is this constant call for investigations on organ harvesting or on the Uyghur situation to some extent. It's because it's usually framed as China must explain itself. Now it's time for China to explain itself to the world. And of course, they, what is the point of China lying? I mean, really, what is the point of Beijing giving us some new lies? That's what they did with organ harvesting. They said, oh, well, there's all these voluntary donations. And that was refuted by... Uh, by uh, Jacob Levy and, and Matt Robertson, who came out with a report on the voluntary donation, showed it was a perfect parabolic curve based on an equation. The chances of getting that kind of curve are a million to one. Okay, maybe not a million to one. I don't know. Maybe it's 500,000 or 250,000. One of your viewers or, or listeners out there can correct me on that point. But, you know, it's extremely, it's almost impossible to get a parabolic curve with natural events, okay, other than physics. That did allow us to move on to some extent to say, well, we don't actually have to call for an international investigation where China will lie some more and then we can all go home. Yeah, I mean, I think what I also liked about it is uh, with the China Tribunal, media felt like they could report on something without having to actually do their own research, which is kind of a, a funny commentary on the media, but also it's true because like media don't want to do a lot of investigative journalism these days. They want to get clicks. And so, you know, you provide this Uyghur tribunal and then media can just point to that and say, well, here's the conclusion that they came up with. And media don't feel like they have to back it up with sending their own reporter into the field. You know, Mm. very few media have done that. I mean, you've got BBC a little bit, uh, Buzzfeed uh, impressively. Uh, with Mega Rajagopalan, who was who's been on our podcast, you know, but but you don't see a whole lot of it, and so now you've got this this substantive body of evidence that media can can pick from and not have to actually go into Xinjiang. Well, yes, because going into Xinjiang is a fool's errand; uh, it doesn't prove anything. Yeah, I, I think going into Xinjiang. Uh, and shoot, shooting uh, dancing girls in a Uyghur camp is, is disgraceful. Okay, I thought that was one of those horrible things that the BBC did. And now they justified it very obviously because if you look closely at one of the still shots, you can see that one of the guys dancing in front of you, sort of playing to the camera, has a black eye. But most viewers didn't even notice that. They just noticed, boy, you know, we Uyghur women really know how to dance, which they do. Okay, uh, so that was a uh, mostly when they go in, it's it's not proving anything. The hard part, of course, is now that everything is getting shut off. Uh, 
Kazakhstan is out of limits now uh, for most reporters, really. Yeah. Uh, the human rights groups have been shut down. Kazakhstan is our is the main repository of Uyghur witnesses. Is it shut down because of COVID or other reasons? Oh well, only COVID, comrade. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's always it's always COVID these days. Uh, that's the excuse that authoritarian states use. Now they either authoritarian states have two different reactions to COVID. One is to uh, follow New Zealand's example. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean New Zealand's an authoritarian state in any way. I don't. I take that back. I'm really sorry. I said it uh, to Kendar Dan or whatever. He's a wonderful human being and a saint. Now. But there are other countries which are dealing with it exactly the same way she is, which is proclaiming zero COVID. North Korea did that. And uh, saying that nobody's ever lost their life to a COVID case yet. That's sort of was the case with Tajikistan for a long time, for example, which is an authoritarian state. Other authoritarian states handled it a little differently. They used it as an excuse to uh, round up anyone they didn't like. And that's what happened in Kazakhstan. Uh, and that means every human rights group, which was uh, defending people who'd been in the camps and there were refugees from China who had Kazakh blood or Kazakh ethnicity in particular, uh, those groups are all shut down. And literally every uh, human rights group there has been fined thousands and thousands of dollars. So what do you hope to accomplish in Turkey? The situation must be different there. I'm just there to buy rugs. Uh, just gonna got it, you know. Uh, and they make this uh, Turkish delight. It's very yummy. You mean Greek Cyprus delight? Is you know it? That? Is, that's, is that's there a, that's a whole culture war? Oh, no. okay. Is this like a kimchi versus pot thai thing? It's something like yeah. that. Well, well, so on a totally unrelated note to Turkey, uh, the last time we had you on our podcast, you were telling us about your tourist trip into Kazakhstan. And that was in that was before COVID, and so you had observed a lot of refugees there. I had, I had yeah, I got a, I was able to double the amount, which is not that impressive, but at least I doubled the amount of refugees who who were uh, speaking on the record, if not well, using anonymous names and so forth, but the, nonetheless were willing to go on the record, uh, could record their voices. So why do you think there's been um, some resistance internationally to calling it a genocide? I know you feel like that label isn't that meaningful, but. Well, I, I don't know. I think that the resistance has been, I, I suppose my impression is the same as anybody else's. That resistance has been wearing down. Uh, it's the usual problem. Look, there are chinks in the armor here. For a long time, the problem was that the Arab states absolutely stood by China throughout this whole thing. It was clearly connected to the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's certainly true about some places like Pakistan and so forth, who really, uh, you know, refuses to acknowledge that anything's going on in China, on this in East Turkestan or Xinjiang. But, you know, we are looking at United Arab Emirates is now running stories on this. That's a big change. That's a big shift. It's, it's never happened before. Turkey, Erdogan, uh, President Erdogan had a plan to uh, take Uyghurs, uh, uh, 10,000 of them, something like that, some huge number who he's going to send to Tajikistan for the Chinese benefit. And then they presumably Tajikistan would just be a processing place for China uh, to send them back to East Turkestan or Xinjiang. Uh, that plan was there to, uh, in return, China was going to give them Sinovac vaccines, the Chinese vaccines, which are pretty effective. They're slightly more than 50% effective. Slightly more than 50% effective. Okay, that's right. And, and even that's not really proven. Uh, but at any rate, at that point, Turkey was in a lot of trouble. It was really seeing a, a big boom in cases and so forth. So they were considering doing that, and there was a kind of outcry in Turkish society, which had less to do with the caring about the Uyghurs and more to do with the fact that the economy is not doing well under Erdogan right now, and that there's a plausible opposition candidate, maybe for the first time in mm -hmm. some years. So 
uh, for all those reasons, I think Erdogan shelved it. Although, as I say, you know, you never believe, you can't believe the Chinese when they say, oh, this is shelved, right? The, a deal's always still on the table as far as they're concerned, or at least that's the psychology of Beijing as I understand it. Now, the issue then became, well, what's going on in uh, Tajikistan? And some of the findings that have come out this year have said, well, no, they've actually taken vast amounts of Uyghurs, or about 90 or 80 to 90 percent of the Uyghurs who were in country, and deported them back to Xinjiang, East Turkestan. Uh, that's happened, I believe, in Kyrgyzstan as well, to some extent in Uzbekistan, and as many cases in Kazakhstan. Uh, now, obviously, we're looking at Afghanistan. We have something like 85 families uh, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, we have, or maybe 2,000 Uyghurs. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese are, I'm sure you've covered this, uh, the Chinese are cozying up temporarily to the Taliban. Uh, and I assume that that's going to be their first mission, is to take the, the Uyghurs back. Yeah, it seems shocking how uh, these... Uh, predominantly Muslim countries have handled the Uyghur situation. Yeah, they haven't handled it well. I mean, Pakistan, is, as I said, has been, uh, but they haven't cracked down too deeply. I wouldn't say the world has been unresponsive. That's what I wouldn't say. I mean, there's been a fair amount of response in the Western world. And in fact, compared to Falun Gong, in many ways, there's been much more of a response. Uh, it depends how you look at it. From the Uyghur perspective, it's too late. And, and it's been too long in coming, but that was certainly the Falun Gong perspective as well, and maybe worse. I don't even believe the world really started paying attention much to Falun Gong after the initial uh, repression or persecution uh, until the organ harvesting issue really hotted up, uh, you know, in 2006, 2007. And even then, you know, the world loses interest again. So that's, I think that's the long-term problem for the Uyghurs is something similar. Well, I know there have been some accusations by Uyghur and other human rights activists that the Biden administration might be softening its tone on China to try to win some kind of cooperation on climate change. Now, those are just rumors. But do you think there, there's – have you seen anything like that? Well, I thought that there's, there's a double-edged sword with climate change, isn't there? Because on one hand, if you're looking for – a a sort of inoffensive excuse for decoupling your economy from China and getting companies out of China, that would be the, the, the way to do it, is to sort of pull a Trudeau. Say, oh, well, you're not, you know, you're just not living up to our standards of treatment of women and, and, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, transvestites or whatever. I mean, you know, this is the, these issues that are very Western sort of first world problems. You can use them as a way to especially appeal to your more liberal base and use them to decouple, which is the objective here, I would think. I mean, this is not, you don't go into a Cold War dependent on the other side. That's all this is. I mean, this whole thing is just really how... How do you negotiate the early stages of a Cold War, in my opinion? And so I, I would imagine that there must be some people in the Biden administration who see it that way, too. Uh, now, if that's the case, then they should be using the glo you know, climate change as a, as a tool to decouple. That's interesting. But I don't know that, they, but I don't know that they're playing such clever three-dimensional chess here. Maybe they really just think that if they're nice to China and set a good example, China will respond. Because hmm. I, I remember in the first, the first maybe two years of the Trump administration, you know, Trump was, you know, he wanted to have his trade deal, you know, use language like my friend Xi Jinping. And by the way, I don't get to use that voice very much anymore. So it's an opportunity. Uh, but he was like, co you know, I felt like he was really cozying up to Xi Jinping uh, and to China and wanted to have these trade deals. But in the end, I'd say really the last two years, and especially after COVID, the final year, like, was him him saying, oh, you know, we tried everything and it didn't work. And, you know, now look what, you know, the ink wasn't even dry on the trade deal and they released this virus. 
uh, the accuracy of that is is perhaps disputed. But the the point is that I felt by the end like maybe he was kind of using the we tried everything as then an excuse later. And so are you saying that the Biden administration might be pulling a Trump? I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I have a tendency to be little Mary Sunshine and optimistic about everything I can. That's what I love about you. (laughs) Yes, that's that's me. If you could just tell how the as as the sun becomes a dramatic, like highlighting your eyes like a film noir. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the deal. I mean, I'm just saying it's a possibility that this is if you're looking at this from a liberal or perspective that could please your base you could say well we're breaking off from china or we're we're getting apple out of china because we don't like their environmental practices and that's your justification you could say you talk about the uyghurs too they to some extent uh, they have to some extent okay at least they haven't uh gone against the genocide determination and so forth uh if you're republican or populist uh, or conservative, or mainly populist, you would do it Trump's way. You'd say, well, we gave them a chance to do a fair deal. They didn't take it. They, We can't trust them. Uh, it's not working. You know, they're currency manipulators. They're, they're manipulating their trade. Uh, and so we're going to pull out for that reason. I mean, there is no human rights party here, okay? No one cares about this issue. <laughs> This is really power Mm. politics, mainly. Okay? I am here, as a human rights guy, to provide ballast to one side or another. I'm quite aware of that. Mm. It's a bit like my wife, who's an art historian, and she's there to provide, help provide prices at auctions off various art, off various Chinese art goodies. Right? And what she writes has an effect on setting that price. Human rights is a, a little bit the same, not just now to sound very cynical about it, but it is true. This is only being used by different sides at different times, largely. And now the, the exception to that would be somebody like Pompeo, who seems to have some genuine beliefs about the survival of Taiwan, for example, for sure, and seems to have some beliefs about, about the Uyghurs as well. I think there are exceptions, but mostly this is a tool of power politics at this point. So as a human rights activist, knowing that this is uh, sort of how power politics work, how do you end up trying to use the system we're forced to operate under to affect change that, you know, should be the morally correct thing to do, but that's never enough. I'm not an activist. So as, as Ethan Gutman, the good all around guy. As Ethan Gutman, the good all-around guy, your question is, what should I do or what am I trying to do here? How do you try to affect change when everything's about power politics? Well, I think there is one, I'm being a little too overly cynical. The fact is, facts do change things. When we can really establish that something's going on, like this business of forced labor, right? The forced labor issue, we've been able to show Directly, the companies are involved. They've been able to come out with auctions, little electronic auctions of human beings, of uh, parcels of Uyghurs being, you know, being uh, sold to such and such subcontract with Apple or Nike, right? That does have a, that has a real impact. It causes Apple a lot of problems. It causes Nike a lot of problems. It takes them months <laughs> to fix up that stuff. Months. Okay. Uh, you know, that's one. Okay, I give you another example. It's, and it's too early to talk about, it, but this is a scoop. I Ooh. give you a scoop. Okay. So, one of the women I spoke to this year was in, in Turkey, actually, in Ankara. And she was, I call her Pepper Girl. Why? Well, when she was young, younger, she was forced by her school to go and pick peppers. This didn't, the Han Chinese weren't expected to do this, but the Uyghurs had to. Most of people are familiar with Uyghurs picking cotton, okay? They send them out, the school kids go out to pick cotton, and uh, 
they, they work in the sun. It's very tough and so forth, but it's supposed to be good for them. And uh, in this case, the girl was working for the Bing Tuan, which is the Chinese military system. And they're sort of, it's almost like a homeland system in, inside Xinjiang. Well, the Bing Tuan sent her out to pick peppers one day, and she had to wear these special gloves, and she had to wear a special mask uh, and all this stuff because the peppers are very toxic. You can't eat them. Okay, well, uh, what were they for? She said, I think they had something to do with cosmetics. Hmm. And boy, did the light bulb go off in my head. I said, my God, is that true? Well, just a few, just uh, 10 days ago, the Chinese came out with a video saying, look at these wonderful peppers that are grown in Xinjiang. Did you know more than half the world's cosmetics or lipstick comes from these peppers and pigmentation. Whoa. <laughs> okay. This is being, this is slave labor. Women are putting this stuff on their faces every day. Now you could eat anything you like. Okay. Everybody's willing to eat anything. I'm cool with that too. I'm, I'm like that too. And everybody's willing to wear anything, leather, whatever. I love leather jackets, but putting something intimate on your, on your mouth it comes from slave labor. That's a really kind of a sick idea, isn't it? Or I find it a sick. I don't know. I'm going to stop wearing lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, Shelly, how do you feel that lipstick you wear might have been uh, a Uyghur picking a peck of pickled peppers? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that's pretty stunning. I don't wear red lipstick, so I feel better about He never myself. said red. Yeah, it could be pink peppers. Oh, okay. I didn't say they could be pink they could be picking a peck of Pickled pink peppers. There it could even go. be, I know there's like lipstick or stuff. I, I th These are just things I know. Don't ask any more questions. But that like give your lips a little <laughs> more of a, a plumpness to oh, them. Oh, right. There are some that like are tingly. Yeah. And I wonder huh. if that's because of the things that make peppers. Yeah. Because it's spicy. supposed to plump up your lips mm -hmm. by like making, like stimulating them. That's Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. I should try it. Theoretically. Like whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> so I mean... You see, this has got some resonance here. Okay, you see? So this one, okay, and this one I'm proud of because it's mine. Well, now it's now it's ours, Ethan, because you came on our show and you shared your scoop with us, and now we're going to scoop you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you could go ahead and try to do it, but I'm the one with the witness. Uh -huh. So I'm the one who, and I hope that we'll see her testify in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, really, she only has this one little story. But it's such an important story. I mean, it's, it's it, look, the cotton industry got pretty badly messed up by uh, what Pompeo did with the uh, saying that you couldn't have sourced cotton from Xinjiang, or at least from the big tuans in Xinjiang. Now, this is, if I were Esty Lauder and I was watching this show, I'd, I'd have broken into a cold, I'd be in a cold sweat at this point. He is one of our biggest fans. It's a woman. Whatever. Uh, if I was Mac, Mac, my wife's favorite is Mac. Okay, Mac lipsticks. <laughs> if I were the Mac executive, I'd be pretty upset. This is this is could be very damaging. This could make things very difficult. If the video is telling the truth, which is that fifty over fifty percent of all the reds in the lipsticks is coming from Xinjiang, from these peppers. Wow. Who's picking those things? And this is not an easy thing to do. And you have to have somebody who's willing to kind of, she got very sick from it. Oh, yeah. yeah. W willing, right, is the, is the key word. <laughs> what, what happened to her? She had yeah. respiratory problems? She had a lot of respiratory problems because the, uh, just picking these peppers is so toxic. Uh, so it's not some delightful experience in any way. I mean, it was a kind of a very bad experience for her. Now, I'm not going to go on about how it's ruined her life or something like that, but this is slave labor. This is, these are facts that change things. Uh, to me, that was a, so that's, that's a good one. Uh, obviously, the wig industry was completely changed once Kulchera Hoja came out with their findings on these, that the hair was all from Uyghur women who, you know, systematically get their hair cut when they enter the, the camps. Uh, customs did crack down. They brought uh, I 13 tons, I think, of human hair they found. That's right. Approximately 90,000 women gave their hair for that 
those wakes. Oh. Well, yeah, this is these are the things that like get people to wake up. It reminds me of what was it, Upton Sinclair? Throw the jungle. Yeah, that was supposed to be about like trying to get people inspired. Like, oh, the working conditions are so horrible, but it just made. It, it ended up having that effect, but people were freaked out about like the bad quality of what they were eating. Um, so yeah, like when, when, like, if like women started knowing like, oh my gosh, where, where's my lipstick coming from? That does make you, cause like, this is all, that's at an ing- ingredient level, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like you could buy Mac or Estee Lauder, like that one is necessarily better than the other because they're all getting their stuff from. Oh yeah. yeah. It's the same, same product yeah. essentially. It could, could even be the same, the same company, like how. You know, almost every countertop microwave sold in America is actually produced by the same single Chinese company. So, like, yeah, I wouldn't, I would imagine that all these cosmetics companies are getting like the certain color dye from the same place in Xinjiang, if that's indeed where they're getting it from. Or, like, that wouldn't be a surprise that that, you know, one part of the supply chain is dominated by like a Chinese state run company, because that just happens all the time. Right, except I'm not even sure this one is a, a, a single company. It's a little hard to tell from the information we have. We're just starting to look into this. But as I said, when when she said that, it was one of those moments where I went, oh, this has real potential. Okay. And this, this re- can, again, I'm sorry to put it this way, guys, but everybody knows I'm thinking it'll take them months to fix this up. That's all. Okay, call you know, call it just throwing a spanner in the works temporarily. But sometimes we can't expect that much more than that. You know, look, the fact is, capitalism is a great system. It'll find ways to work around these things. Uh, but, you know, this trouble comes back to China and haunts them. And my key feeling here, since you're got me on the show, I'll just tell you what I think. I think this is the main thing stopping them from outright uh, killing all the Uyghurs, because I think that is the plan. Really? Uh, I don't think they want these people around. Uh, I believe there's a racial basis for that, for the what they're doing. Uh, but I'd go further, and I'd say that uh, now that these crimes have been committed against these people, they want to cover it up in the old-fashioned way. The communists always use, which is just killing anybody who saw anything. But, you know, the, why isn't that happening? Probably because of things like this, because we keep enough information coming in. We keep the issue on the front burner as long as we can. Uh, hold up that. We hold that up until maybe Xi Jinping, you know, maybe there's a reform or something yeah. like that. Well, the problems with Uyghurs had began well before Xi Jinping even came to power. So it's right. I mean, you were telling us about the organ harvesting of Uyghurs in the 1990s back on a, on another podcast. That's true, but that was a. Well, I'm thinking about what was it the the massacre in 2008, 2009 in Urumqi? 2009. It was like eight ish, eight nine. It was 2008. Um, but that wasn't even that was relatively small scale. I mean, this is quite, it's the reaction that it led to, which is so significant. Look, the organ harvesting in, in 1997, after the Gulja massacre, was minor. I mean, it was probably less than 100 people, maybe. Okay. We can say that, you know, what we're looking at now is an acceleration of all that. We didn't have evidence of sexual slavery. Uh, in the Uyghur community, the one, the kind of evidence we have today. Uh, there was no real attack on fertility, Uyghur fertility, not significantly. Well, well, since, since you bring those things up, uh, Ethan, and, you know, we always like to take even darker turns on this podcast. So uh, after this Uyghur tribunal, uh, what is made clear now about the Chinese Communist Party's, you know, treatment of Uyghur women. If you do have, if we do have something good to say about the BBC, it was the report that they did on, on rape because they made some real breakthroughs in that area. Now, these were two of the interviews were with women I'd interviewed myself in one in Sweden and another in uh, Almaty. And there was a problem 
which I kind of recognized at the time, but I didn't feel I could really do anything about, which was that their husbands were with them when they interviewed. In many cases, their husbands didn't know that they'd been raped. I did because I knew the lawyer who'd represented both women. And she had really hinted to me that this is what had happened. Uh, in both cases, the women came clean once they left their homes, uh, went off touring or uh, so forth. And then under questioning, they decided to reveal that they'd been raped. Uh, now, I do have something very big coming in my book about that other spectacular story. Uh, so I'm quite aware of this issue, and it's, you know, as much as I did run into it too while I was doing Fallen Gong, uh, this is more systematic, uh, and it's far more public. Uh, so I think that's the significant difference. Uh, and I do believe that indicates the racial aspect of this. Right, and the, the forced sterilization as well, right? That I know less about, but I think uh, Adrian Zentz uh, is the master of this field in the, in, well, in most areas. Uh, and he showed that conclusively, that the mass sterilization is taking place and has been for some time. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people really talk enough about the sort of like Han supremacy thing the Chinese Communist Party has been pushing. Because it's having some real nasty effects. I think it does. I, I believe that this feels different to me than uh, any other investigation I've undertaken because of that. Uh, there's a straight-out racial quality to this. There's a there's sort of a tendency to do things to women that you would only do to it's sort of like an animal, torturing an animal, uh, like what little boys do to frogs, that kind of thing. I mean, it's a really repulsive and unbelievable experience. I've got some stories about that. Um, uh, and snuff displays, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, so I think it's very important to, to bring that stuff out. And it's very, very hard for Muslim women in particular to bring this stuff out. Uh, it's very difficult for them to talk. But I don't think we should just get caught up in that one issue either. I mean, the labor issue is, is a big one because it's the, it's the money and because it, it's directly related to us and what we produce and what we buy. Uh, so we have direct involvement. I actually wanted to ask you about organ harvesting and the Uyghurs, because I think the last time you were on, you had expressed that you felt like this was still an area where people didn't really want to like address it or touch it because it's, it's a harder like thing to prove or to talk about versus like, you know, slave labor, like you said, that's more direct in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think there's much less cover-up of uh, the transplant industry. I mean, the transplant industry is far more secretive than, say, the production of sneakers or something, um, obviously. And the Chinese have definitely learned to keep it quite quiet. Uh, I wouldn't say that I added a lot of new evidence on this uh, over the last year. I'm very happy about the evidence I got that I received already. Uh, I was able to talk to them about how I think it's an int it's interesting that China, you know, is, is not playing to its real strengths. I mean, the area where China was supposed to succeed here was pharmaceuticals, big pharma. That was its future. I knew that 20 years ago. Uh, organ harvesting was obviously a distraction. Transplant industry is a distraction. It's quick capital. It's quick cash. It's nothing more than that. It's a way of destroying some enemies. The, your future is in the confidence game called pharma. And they keep losing at that game. And that is very bad news for the Uyghurs because, of course, well, they lost with infant formula. Uh, that defect, you know, the fact that people have to go to Hong Kong to buy infant formula is a uh, a disaster. Uh, and then, of course, COVID and coming out with such a rotten vaccine, okay, which is the one thing that indicates to me that they definitely did not put this thing out of, did not let it escape from the lab on purpose, okay, because obviously you'd have a wonderful vaccine and waiting in the wings, and then China to the rescue. That didn't happen. 
Uh, so I think, uh, you know, what I see is a you know, terrible series of errors. Uh, and like a dog returneth to its vomit, it just keeps going back to organ harvesting. Again, I, I would have thought they should be going, it would be, it's, it's, it'd be finished, but it, it's not. Uh, and all the evidence shows that the hospitals are back in business. Uh, now, there is the one piece of news I'd say is that uh, hopefully, uh, I think we can start to see some action pretty soon uh, from Congress, which hopefully will lead to some embargoes on some of the surgical equipment that's being sold to China and that sort of thing, because that's very important to break up. And there was some wonderful work done by some Falun Gong practitioners uh, in Prague who really uh, did groundbreaking work on establishing which companies were selling bio glue, for example, or kidney transplant robotics to China. That's going to have a, that will have a dramatic impact. Yeah, it'll take them months to clean that up. <laughs> it'll take them months. So much <laughs> relentless optimism. I mean, you were just saying that like the Chinese Communist Party is so incompetent that it can't succeed at its grand ambition. So it just has to do organ harvesting. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, so much is that, is that what you're saying, Ethan? Is that like organ harvesting is going to get worse because they are not able to have this breakthrough in pharma? Take a look at the figures. I was shocked myself because I've been saying this for a while without even bothering to look at the figures. It's very gut, but, but, but the fact is, if you see the growth of pharmaceuticals in China, it barely tracks inflation, okay? It's there, there, this is going nowhere, okay? This was supposed to be, look, this is a country which doesn't, can make any kind of FDA they like. As a, uh, oh, who's that? columnist in the New York Times, like, oh, to be China for a day. Who's that fellow? Oh, like Thomas Friedman? That's is right. that him? Yeah. Yeah. Thomas Friedman, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of the Thomas Friedman theory of China, right? Is, you know, oh, well, they can do anything they like. They can create this fantastic FDA, which will clear things, you know, uh, which will make the uh, warp speed of our clearance, you know, look like nothing, you know, they'll be, they'll be faster than the speed of the internet and, and so forth. Uh, and instead, what do they do? They, no. None of that, okay? They cannot get the world's confidence in this area at all. Uh, and so that that's crushing. This is a disaster for their medical system. So I, I, I believe that, you know, that they're very vulnerable in that area. And that's what I would argue. I mean, if we're going to talk in a very real politic way about it, that's, that's what I'd say. They're very vulnerable and we should cut them off and we should uh, treat their doctors like crap. We shouldn't invite them to any conferences, and they shouldn't be allowed in any reindeer games, and that's it, okay? And they don't, we don't want their students going to our med schools. I mean, period. I mean, unless anything to do with surgery, anyways. Nothing, nothing. Yeah, but if we don't let them play the reindeer games, then sooner or later, they're going to be leading Santa's sleigh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what they think. <laughs> Kids think that, too, Chris, okay? It's Wait, are you true. saying Rudolph was a lie? <laughs> He will always be ostracized for his differences. <laughs> no, this is really dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the forced sterilization. No, blah, blah, blah. No, now no, we're, we're dark. We're going, yeah. Oh, but, boy. you know, it, the one thing that does make me feel better is I can I can really relate to what the Chinese Communist Party is going through with, with pharma because, you know, at some level, we're all deeply incompetent. That's 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 certainly true. I feel that way. But so if the, so, if their pharma plans are failing, um, what do you think their next move will be? I don't know. I, 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 as I say, I mean, I think they're, you know, if if the West lets up, I think. Well, the one thing I did find out over this period was I was looking at this uh, compound, and maybe I showed you even a picture of it or something last time, but that's really gelled. The Oxu organ harvesting compound, where you basically have two camps, total of about 50,000 people, and then less than a kilometer away, I mean, literally something you, about 8,000 meters away, uh, is a, a large crematorium. Okay, a very large crematorium. And... Uh, then 20 minutes away, 20-minute drive is an airport, the Oxu Airport, where they have a green lane, which is a special 
green passage lane for human organs is a fast track lane for human organs. It says so, okay? Special organ exportation lane, human organ exportation lane. Uh, so obviously you're, and they have a hospital that the camps were actually built around a hospital called the Oxu Infection Hospital, which started, now I'm, well, I was able to go in and take that around on that more. And Kulchera Hoja did the original research, and I started digging more. I went and talked to a couple of guys in Turkey who, who lived in Aksu and used to drive by the crematorium every day. And uh, they said it stunk. So originally I thought it was a water-based system, which is a little slow when getting rid of bodies. It takes about three hours to dissolve the body, all the fats, all the bones, and so forth, very hot water. Uh, but they said, no, it, it smelled like, you know, charred bones. And I said, okay, so that's a burner system. Well, that means it's very fast and probably very efficient. And they probably have a, a, an afterburner to get rid of, so there's no smoke, but there's just the smell, the residue left. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means we could be looking at, you know, thousands of people going up chimneys that you can't even see every day. We could. And I'm not saying that's happening yet. We don't really know that, and we don't see the evidence of that yet. We just know that there's a, you know, a transplant hospital, the Oxy Infection Hospital. We know it was built as a SARS hospital. We know that uh, from again from these witnesses, uh, and that it turned into a hospital for Muslim extremists. So it was basically like a psychiatric ward in the old Soviet Union. It's a way to torture them, get them drugs. Uh, this was, you know, uh, mid two thousands kind of period. So when things were relatively peaceful, as we were discussing earlier. Uh, and that's what we know. And then that's what, so this was basically an, an evil hospital. And now it's being used for, for transplants. And we have, we've never had something like this before, the sort of Oliver Stone moment where we saw everything in the same place. That seems pretty blatant to build it all right there. It is pretty blatant. I mean, what's interesting about it, too, is that the, the witnesses uh, to this crematorium said that they always assumed they were smelling Chinese bodies. I said, why is that? He said, because Uyghurs don't like to cremate. We hate cremation. The Chinese like cremation. We don't like it. He's right. Well, look, Ethan, we need to work with China on climate change. And it sounds to me like they have created clean burning crematoriums. We should be congratulating them. You know, uh, I think if the Biden administration is going to go on this approach, uh, they need to study the Trudeau record very carefully and how successful the Trudeau record of Canada and how successful it's been at changing Chinese behavior. <laughs> Very successful, right? Mm -hmm. Can't wait to work with these allies. Yeah. I mean, it's still probably uh, better than Germany. Oh, you mean better than, than working with current Angela Merkel Germany? Yeah. Yes. Uh, marginally, yes. Do you think that the U.S. is going to pass that Uyghur forced labor bill? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's very hard to determine what's, it's hard for me to determine. I've been over in England for quite some time. I don't have the pulse of the street. I am moving back to the United States for a while. Uh, I have to be back here, even actually probably right here in London Heathrow Airport, uh, just about a year from now, okay, uh, for family reasons. But uh, I'm going to be traveling for this entire next year or part of it in the States. I hope to spend some time in Washington, D.C. Uh, I still think there are plenty of people I know who are much better lobbyists than me and people who are considered good diplomacy, better at diplomacy than me. So I'm, I'm not going to try to move into that angle. You know what I do? That's what I try to do is still investigative research, and I still try to get it out there. I am working on this new book. I would like to promote it for a yeah, second. Please. Oh, sorry, right? we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say one thing, okay, which is that this is not going to be, you know, I, I talked to my agent and she said, Ethan, it sounds like you want to write a textbook on organ harvesting. And I said, 
no, I don't. And she said, well, don't. Okay, write about these adventures you've had. And I have a bunch of adventures to, to reveal and interesting stuff. And so I will write about that, though we'll have a lot of facts and so forth. I'm, I do believe that the, the China Tribunal wrote that textbook for me. And I'd also recommend people read Matt, Matthew Robertson's most recent report for Victims of Communism Foundation uh, that was done. It's a very sort of state-of-the-art wrap-up of the field, and you can read it in, uh, you know, in a couple of hours. The Uyghur Tribunal would take you a couple of weeks. But uh, there are some very good resources out there for people on that issue. Uh, I'd also recommend anything by Adrian Zentz is worth at least skimming. So anybody who has any questions on the forced labor aspects or the sterilization, brute sterilization of Uyghur women, uh, I think they should look at that stuff. Uh, really profoundly good. And he just came out with a new report showing that the Chinese leadership gave all the orders for all these various programs. And it was absolutely conclusive. In fact, it was. I had a very nice speech at the Uyghur Tribunal that day. It was the last day of the tribunal, about 10 in the morning. And uh, I was really happy with it. And we had very good Q&A. And then at the end of the day, the last witness was Adrian Zentz, and he just came in and won all the marbles immediately. <laughs> he just came in, and basically what they've been trying to do is put together a flowchart, because these are legal minds, right? They want a flowchart. They want to know how these things connected and how the orders were given. And he just came in and said, oh, yeah, I've got something coming out, major study on that tomorrow. And he just went through it very quickly. It's just Well, I'm actually pretty excited about this new book you're writing because I, I know you've been on some pretty incredible adventures, uh, particularly your trip to Kazakhstan, number one exporter of potassium. And <laughs> I, I think that would make a very exciting book for people to read. Yeah. No, it'll be it'll be a good it'll be a good book report. Yeah. I mean, but, but you know, Ethan, I, I I've got some some writing advice for you as a as an unpublished author myself. Yes, uh, is if you want a book that people are really going to read, you want your your main character to be a a young uh, British wizard child, uh, and he goes up against an evil sorcerer who's actually a, a Han Chinese supremacist who hides his horcruxes in the organs of ethnic minorities. Oh, God, that got really bad very quickly. <laughs> uh, um, sort of a, you're sort of a fan fiction. Yeah, yeah Chris, what do you think? About, it sounds about like, sounds like there's uh, plenty of opportunity for eroticism. Oh, God. Oh, no, that's no, not what I was hoping no. you'd go towards. So, so Ethan, it's it's a, it's a unfortunately well-known fact that Chris had many years ago, accidentally read Harry Potter fan fiction, believing it was the real Harry the Potter. Real Harry Potter. Yeah. I feel Leaving, like that yeah. story had a bigger splash than anything we've done with China Uncensored. <laughs> well, and, and, and that gets back to my point, which is, which is really, you should just write, you know, Harry Potter fan fiction, but about organ harvesting. When will your book come out? That sounds great. <laughs> the adventure book. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I have to, I have a few last things to tie up. Uh, Such as rug shopping in Turkey. Rug shopping in Turkey is one of them. There's some other stuff further east. Oh. But uh, and we'll should, I should be able to wrap that up, and then we should be able to uh, get through this year and then write this write this whole book. Uh, I'm trying to put a little bit out ahead of time. Uh, I'll be desperately promoting things afterwards, not because I make money off books, because nobody makes money off books anymore ever but uh there are some good stories uh one of the one thing i want to just tell you about my internal thought process about this was what i don't want to do is take away from the victims i mean i never wanted to write about myself in uh, any of my books well i mean recent like the slaughter which really isn't about me it's about the victims it's about what happened to Falun Gong and what happened to people who did some terrible things on the other side and, and so forth. And I would love to preserve that discipline and that way of doing it. But I also feel like I have some things to say about the investigative process for the first time. I'm an amateur. Um, I'm not James Bond. I'm an amateur at this. But I have some things to say about how to pull it off because I've done it now, I think, three times. And that's going to hopefully that that will add something to. Uh, and it'll also be kind of funny because it's amateurs. That's the point. You make a lot of mistakes, mistakes as an amateur. 
you're very careful about some things and then other things just give you away. Well, it's okay to be the hero of your own story. I'm not doing it that way, but I do feel like, you know, part of putting the human back in human rights writing is to do that is you cannot just tell stories about people just as raw victims. You must add some other elements, something that gives them life and depth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's just simply unfair to do that to, to people, to turn them into nothing but their victim experience. This is awful. It's a new kind of dehumanization. I mean, we do that by adding bad jokes. <laughs> uh, that just dehumanizes us. <laughs> but well, but I do understand what you're saying, Ethan, because I feel like, you know, sometimes when you interview somebody who's just like, they're used to just talking about like how they were tortured. And like that, that's like, it becomes right. like a speech that they have about how they were tortured, you know? Mm. Um, and then, yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is one of the victims. I mean, you know, obviously there were Holocaust survivors who did that for almost a living for, in a way, and would come out and tell their stories. But it was very important that they kind of had to do it. But I've watched this with Enver Tati, you know, who you've had on your show. No, we haven't, haven't actually. Well, you really ought to. Enver Tati is amazing. But you're going to see a funny thing that will happen when he tells his main story, which is about cutting out some of these kidneys and liver while the man's heart is still beating, okay? Uh, which is what he did. I mean, he was a surgeon. He was told to go uh, bring a surgical team and come to this execution ground, and they did. And then he was told this man, he said, this man is uh, still alive. And they said, yes, you know, take out the kidneys and the liver. And he did. And, you know, he's told that story so many times that he finds it very difficult to tell again and again. And I think that's to his credit. He doesn't like telling the story. He doesn't like reliving it particularly. Uh, he doesn't want to have to put himself in that emotional frame of mind. And he wants to be thought of as something more than just the guy who did this. Uh, and I think that's fair to expect that. So, but I do recommend him to be on your show. Very much. I mean, he's he's got a lot of interesting things to say about the Uyghur experience, and he's also one of the more critical people uh, about how the Uyghurs have handled their own repression and their own. Uh, he's not even sure the Uyghur Uyghur people are really a people, are ready to self-govern, and I think that's very distinct. That's something he said for years. It's very consistent, and I think it's something he believes, and it's very interesting to get that point of view. So. Well, so where can anyone uh, follow you for updates about your book, what you're doing next? No, I mean, I don't, tw I don't use Twitter. I, I just get in too many arguments. I'm afraid I'm very exclusive uh, about Facebook and so forth, but I'll try to do something about that. And frankly, that's something we could have an off-piste conversation about at some point, and I'd be coming to, to, to you folks for advice. Sure, we're social media masters. Yeah, no, my advice is to is to write a Harry Potter fan fiction. So don't come to no, me for advice. Man. Okay, so we need that. a spray bottle. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so so you'll let us know, and uh, and maybe maybe we can also make some kind of announcement when your book comes out. Yeah, I really do. Uh, there's another place, which is I'm going to be writing more regularly for um, Victims of Communism Foundation. There's a final thing, which is I hope to be coming out with a column, but this is in the works right now. This would be a column, a monthly column, kind of on China or on one aspect of China. Uh, and so I hope to be doing that as well. Something, you know, sort of 2,000 words every month kind of thing. Very nice. Uh, but I haven't figured out what's the right venue. A column on a column. Take the chisel, go to the DC columns, chisel your column into a column. You'll get in the papers with that. No, I just, I'm, I'm very old fashioned about this stuff, and I, I still feel like I have to be paid a dollar a word every time I write something. Yeah, I know you're laughing. I Getting paid for work. <laughs> That's not something my generation <laughs> understands. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Ethan, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> uh, yeah, let us know when the column starts coming out. And uh, yeah, we we'll definitely want to have you back on when that book comes out. It's exciting news. And please, pick us up a rug in Turkey. Thanks. So you guys feeling refreshed and uplifted? 
always after a conversation with Ethan. Little Mary Sunshine. That that's true. You know that that reminds me. Somebody uh, asked us on locals recently, like how you know how do you uh, how do you deal with like you know how do, how do you not get depressed thinking about these things all the time? And what did you say? Uh, I'm I'm still thinking. <laughs> But no, like it, it reminds me talking to Ethan because Ethan, well, he he's a ball of sunshine, in many ways. You know, we we laugh, we we make some jokes, and I think that's, you know, some people might be like, oh, well, that's that's irreverent, it's, uh, and it's like you can't, yeah. Those are people who don't even... watch our shows, though, or who don't deal with this long term. Right? No, I mean, you do have to have, you know, a defense mechanism and some kind of way to to be able to like let it go essentially, and not Mm -hmm. carry it around with you all the time. Well, I consider our humor an offense mechanism. (laughs) Because the best defense is a good offense. There you go. Yeah. And and some of our jokes are actually very offensive. (laughs) Uh Uh Uh-huh. Like all the ones I cut. Yes. Oh, man. (laughs) Like that one. Oh, wait. (laughs) Chris doesn't know about that one yet. Oh, the abortion joke. Okay, we'll talk about it later. No, don't. Oh. <laughs> wow, that it's... joke was killed before it even had a chance at life. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. This is how we manage to do this long, long term. Yeah. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. <laughs> I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Sally Chong. And I'm Matt Ganesda. We'll talk to you next time for some good laughs.